So the gospel this morning, that's because I just started it. I did it. I hit it. We are recording. So the gospel this morning, you're thinking that's all I'm going to say, is not quite as familiar as the passage that precedes it. The passage that precedes it is the prologue of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made, and so forth. And further down in the prologue, John bore witness to him and cried, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, for he was before me. And then... Right after the prologue, we have the Pharisees coming down out of Jerusalem to question this man, John. Now, John had, and mind you, he's out in the middle of nowhere. He's in the wilderness, in a place that we would probably, if we visited the city, would consider the wilderness. And in this day, yet, he had created such a ruckus out there with his preaching and his baptizing, and throngs of people were coming to see him. And because he was not properly licensed by the powers that be, they came out to see him too and wanted to ask him some questions to see what kind of disturbance this man was making. Imagine John wearing camel skin, eating locusts and wild honey, a hermit, an ascetic, a man committed. And that's what they found. And so they ask him some questions. They first ask him, are you the Christ? He says, I am not. Of course, we knew that because we said so in John 15. He said, are you that prophet? No. Are you Elijah? No. Now, let's go back real quick here into, let's figure out what do they mean by are you that prophet? You see, they were looking for that prophet. And that prophet appears to us in the last ten sermons of Moses, which is the book of Deuteronomy, where he goes back over. It's this Deuteronomy, the second law. He's, he's covering everything that he needed to cover before he was going to be taken and not travel with them into the promised land. They would no longer have their leader, Moses. And he knew this. And so he preaches these ten last sermons, and in verse 18 of chapter 18, he says, I will raise up for them a prophet, like you from among their brethren, and I will put my words in his mouth. And so they were looking in particular for this prophet promised to them by Moses right before Moses was taken from them. Of course, he's not the Christ. And so he says, are you Elijah? Now, why would they ask him about that? Well, if you go to Malachi, the last of the Old Testament prophets, the book that appears just before in our Bibles, 1 and 2 Maccabees. In chapter 4, beginning in verse 5, I need your time to turn this earlier. Okay, there we go. Beginning in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. And so they were looking for Elijah to come, 
to be the forerunner of the Christ. And to this day, if you go to a Seder dinner at a Jewish home, you will find that they leave a seat empty for Elijah. Sadly, he's already come and gone, but nevertheless, at least they've got that part right. They just kind of missed him by 2,000 years. But beyond that, um, they're good to go. Now, he goes on to say something that's rather remarkable. He says, I baptize you with water, but among you stands one whom you do not know, even he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Now, this speaks to a tradition that existed among disciples and their rabbis at this time. And in fact, it's recorded for us in 250 A.D., by another Jewish rabbi, whose last name was Ben Levi. This is, of course, after the destruction of the temple, but nevertheless, there's still this the synagogue worship and the rabbinical tradition, and this, of course, is during early Christianity. And he says that a disciple of a rabbi must do everything that a slave would do for his master, except take off his shoes. You see, he could demand, a rabbi could demand of his disciple to serve him in any way except to take off his shoes. Now, if you know anything about the Far East, and this exists this way today, they have kind of a, a philosophy of the body. And this is, this is very good and holy and sacred and blessed, and your feet are dirty and filthy and profane. To insult someone in Asia, generally, and this, I found this true in Thailand even, so it starts in the Middle East and goes across all of Asia. To touch someone with your foot is a grave insult. To pick up your shoe and hit him with it or throw it at him is a grave, grave insult. And of course, when you salute someone, generally speaking, it would be salam, right? But if the person was of great honor... You touch your head because this is, this is the high on This is profane and, and dirty and foul. And so, though a slave, of course, could be compelled to take off his master's shoes, a disciple could not. And yet John says here, now you get the relation. And John says, the one who comes after me, I'm not even worthy to be his slave and take off his filthy shoes. It's profound, that statement. It's profound. In context, it has great depth of meaning. Low, 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 low. Now, did anyone notice, as I was going through this, or as we were reading this, the contradiction? Did you see it? Give me a hand, somebody. Where's that contradiction? John says, I'm not the Elijah. That's curious. Matthew, chapter 11, verse 13. For all the prophets of the law, Jesus is speaking, for all the prophets of the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who is to come. Huh. Okay. Jesus has a different opinion of John. 
gets better than that. Mount of Transfiguration. So they go up on the hill, only the three of them, the inner circle, James, John, and Peter. And of course, you know, they, you know the, the God comes down and stands amongst them, and, and uh, Moses and Elijah is there, right? And, and Peter says something stupid like, let's build a tent. And then all of a sudden the voice hits him and they all just go to the ground. Peter. And, uh, and, the, um, and they're coming down the hill and the disciples are talking to him and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? Jesus replied, he replied, Elijah does come. And he is to restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has come, has already come, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now here's a question Whose opinion matters? Whose opinion matters? John the Baptist's opinion of himself? No. No. Was John somehow outside the will of God not knowing that he was the Elijah? No. Not at all. John the Baptist was square. He was the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. The greatest. Not born of woman was there such a man as John the Baptist prior to his coming. No, he was squarely in the will of God. So whose opinion matters? Well, of course, the Lord of glory opinion matters. Now, let's take a little excursion real quick. There is in popular um, psychology and counseling and things like this, this idea of self-esteem. And, you know, there's, there's, it, it, there's a spectrum on this, right? There's, you know, the people with with terrible self-esteem and, and the terrible degradations that it can lead them to. And then, of course, there is, you know, diabolical narcissism as well, which kind of seems to be on the rise. And, of course, narcissism stems from low self-esteem. The person hates themselves so much that they make up a fantasy world a persona, and then they live in it. And they expect everyone else to buy into it too. And who's right there? Well, they're both wrong. For you see, the only opinion that matters of who you are is God's opinion of you. I don't care if you think highly of yourself or too meanly of yourself. That's not the problem. The fact of the matter is, is you don't think of yourself in the way that Christ thinks of you. Now, we're wearing purple today, right? Purple candles, purple frontal, bursts and veil, all the purple. Why is that? I mean, we wear purple during Lent, and we get that, Right? The long, lonely 40 days before we get to the cross. We understand that. Well, what about Advent? It's a birth of a baby, right? It is the horrible, 
horrible humiliation of the second person of the ontological trinity who lived in glory everlasting, who lived not for a long time, but in no time. Timelessness. Time is something that God invented for us to live in. Time is a little ball that God looks at. That's why he doesn't have to predict the future or any of that. He sees all of time at once. It's too hard for us to comprehend because we are so closed in by time. Just like we're closed in by oxygen. But God doesn't live in time. And yet he condescended to be clothed with humanity. I could turn you into an ant and it wouldn't be as degradating as that for God to be a man, a creature, and not even a cool creature like an angel who didn't fall. No, fallen humanity. I mean, at least some of the angels didn't fall. All of humankind fell. I was born in a hospital over there in Easton, 1965, July. I'm sure we had air conditioning. My mom had a soft bed. I had some sort of a, you know, whatever they put you in. You know? You know? It was 65, so it was sterile fields, you know. I got put with all the other sterile babies, right? It was clean. It was safe. My father drove her there in a state truck, you know. There was no riding on some donkey. They didn't get to the hospital and said, no, no, turn away, go home. They didn't stick me in, oh, I love this one. <laughs> what the euphemisms. A manger. Oh, isn't that, a, isn't that a sweet word? It's a trough. It's a trough. Okay? Manger, to eat. Yeah, he was in a manger. It was a trough that they put grain or whatever into so that sheep and goats and camels could eat out of it. I mean, if it wasn't enough, I mean, gosh, he could have at least been born in a palace, right? Ah, but not even. He didn't have the, the nobility of the birth of anybody sitting in this room. He did that for you. I don't care what you think about yourself. I know what Christ thinks about you. But is that enough? No. That he splays himself on a cross. Bloody, mangled beyond what any man could recognize. He willingly mounts it. He could have ended it in a second, the thought. No, he doesn't. Is that enough? No. He says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so every Sunday he revisits you again in the form of bread and wine. How humiliating is that? Proverbs says that a, a, an adulterous woman turns a man into a loaf of bread. Do you think that's a compliment? No. No. He loves you so much. That's what God thinks about you. So I, it doesn't matter if you think you're great or if you think you're not so great. You don't worry about that. You banish those thoughts. The only thing that matters is what Christ thinks about you. And that is clearly on display, friends. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, amen.